Now, Psalm 92, hear God's word. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night with the ten-stringed lute and with the harp and with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep, and since a senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered but you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. I've been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes, and my ears have uh, hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age, they shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. It's a great psalm. It's a psalm that uh, the old church used to sing on the way to church. You can look at the subheading of the psalm. A psalm for the Sabbath day. A psalm for going to church. They would sing this song. So as, I, as I'm thinking about, okay, this is a common psalm that was used uh, to help us as we go to church. Why do we go to church? You know, you get that question as a parent at some point, and, uh, you know, if, you're, if your answers are sufficient, the question goes away. But you, so you can answer the question, why do we go to church? Well, we go to church to, to be equipped. We go to church to become disciples. We go to church uh, to give our praise to God. We go to church to give our tithes and offerings to bring him the tribute. We go to uh, church because we want to obey the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it set apart and holy and useful for God. We go to church because there's this command to uh, assemble together and to encourage and stimulate one another. So those are reasons. And all of those are great reasons, but how about the, some different kind of reasons or the other side of those reasons that we go to church not because of us, and not all of those reasons that I just gave you were just for us, but we go to church for God. What if those were the bigger reasons that we go to church for God. It's not about us. It's not about what we're going to get out of it, though we will get something. It's not about us being equipped, though we will be equipped. It's not about us getting to do things, though we will get to do things. What if it's about God doing something? What if it's about God saying, I'm your covenant-keeping God? And in order for me to keep my covenant with you, I have to have meetings with you. In order for me to be a shepherd, I must gather the sheep in a pen and minister to the sheep. What if it's about God's desire to gather his people so that God can do God's stuff? 
to his people and for his people. And sometimes we don't even think that way, do we? That God has purpose. God has plan. God has something that's bigger than us. And he needs us to accomplish the plan that he's intending to accomplish. He needs us gathered. He needs us in the house of God. And he needs us focused on certain things when we're in his presence and in his house. So as I'm looking at Psalm 92, I'm seeing three things that just kind of emerge from the text that that we need to be focused on. One is we come into this psalm, we come into the house of God, we come into the Sabbath day, and I really think we should come into every day this way. We come in as grateful servants. We come in grateful to God because of all He's done. And then the second part of the psalm deals with, and that not only are we grateful to God for being here, we realize we are being gauged or measured by God. And we adopt His standard for today and for life. And then the psalm ends by giving great glory to God. That it's really about God. And we live, our chief end is to glorify God, to honor Him, to keep His Commands. Well, let me just walk you through this little by little. First of all, and I call it a churchgoer's uh, perspective. This is a perspective, you know, the more I meditate on it too, it's a perspective I don't find on CNN and Fox News or anywhere else for that matter. A churchgoer's perspective. You think about it. You have a perspective on life. You have a worldview that is different than you're going to find on any media platform typically. As has been prayed this morning, we, we get so into our culture that we begin to act like it. And I want to help move us beyond that to back to the Scripture and this perspective that we're, we're waking up with this perspective that today is a day to be grateful to God. Let's look at uh, these first four verses again. It says, it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Him. You know, as I, I uh, saw that first phrase, I said, why? Why did you start it that way? Why, why is this the example that you're giving to me, that it's good to give thanks, it's good to be grateful, it's good to sing praises to God's name? And the conclusion is that, well, that's why we were made. We were made to... Glorify God and give Him praise. Look back at Psalm 88. I love this perspective of the psalmist as he's making this petition. He's about to die. And he uses that principle of we are here alive. We breathe for the purpose of praise. He uses that principle in his prayer. Let me read Psalm 88, verses 10, 11, and 12. Look, look at it. And he's petitioning God. God, will you perform wonders for the dead? So that you get into it, basically, is saying, God, if I die, what are you going to do for me then? You know, it, there's a whole lot more you could do for me while I'm living. It's kind of the perspective. Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? So if I, if I go and my soul departs from my body, my body's in the grave, will, will I be singing praises in the house of God? 
I mean, these are rhetorical questions saying, basically, if you let me die, these things can't happen. Verse 11, will your loving kindnesses be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon. Will your wonders be made known in the darkness? Again, the darkness of the grave. And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. It's a great argument, that prayer. And it just jolts us back to the reality. We have a reason for being here. And our reason for being here is to give God glory. To give Him praise. And the psalmist in Psalm 88, he's, he's, he's using that principle. God, let me live another day. Because I want another day to praise you. I want another day to sing. I want another day to declare your faithfulness. See, that's kind of a prayer you would think God might want to listen to. When we really get tapped into God's purpose and plan for us. So back in Psalm 92, I think that's what the psalmist is starting with. It's good. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. Yeah, that's the good stuff. That's what we should do because that's why we are here is to give thanks to God, to sing His praises, um, to declare His loving kindness, to play an instrument, to do resounding music. And it's interesting when I got to verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. Why me? Why I will sing? I would think that a psalm that's about the corporate body of Christ on the Sabbath day, it's a, it's a, a psalm about coming into the house of God, it would be more about us. It would be more third person plural, not first person, singular. So why, did, why is the emphasis on that? And you think about no, no matter what God does for us corporately, he's also doing to us individually. There's, there's a sense in which God doesn't want any inactive players. He doesn't want any passive participants. He wants all active participants. I, it's good that I get involved. It's good that I sing. It's good that I play. It's good that I declare. All of these things, it's, it's emphasized here both individually and corporately. God wants us individually engaged. Spectators are not what God's looking for. You don't get the picture that God wants us to come to church and be a wallflower. And I've heard people say, well, I, uh, why'd you go to that church? And they'll say, well, I just didn't, I just wanted to observe. I just wanted to kind of get lost for a while. Well, that's not what God wants. God doesn't want just observers. He doesn't want you just sitting where you're not noticed. He wants to notice you. He wants you to be engaged and singing and participating. So you get that participation emphasis when he switches persons there, I think. Um, we must want individually what we need corporately. Think about all that God has done. Um, when, when you look at it, the focus is not on, on the worship. The focus is on the Lord. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises to your name, O Lord Most High. 
And that, again, is a critique on us at times. So, why do you like church? Well, I like it because I can, I can feel the worship. I like it because it gives me something. The focus in the Scripture is not on it giving us something. The focus is not on us feeling worship as good as that is. The focus is on the object of worship, which is Christ. That it's not about me designing a worship service for you. It's not about me designing the right feelings for you. But it's about me giving to Jesus the object of our praise and our adoration. Declaring He, he is glorious and magnificent. Sometimes we have to critique our own hearts and say, Lord, it was way too much about me this morning. And it needs to be far more about you. That my singing needs to be to you and to you alone. Yes, there's the aspect of the corporate nature. Colossians talks about how we just sing spiritual songs to one another. So we sing horizontally, but we sing vertically. The emphasis in Psalm 92 is clearly this vertical dimension of singing to God and giving ourselves to God. And we're doing so uh, realizing that everything depends upon it. When I was in college, I used to do a lot of uh, spelunking and a lot of rock climbing and different stuff. Looking at me today, you might think, that's crazy. Well, it was. Um, I was climbing up the face of Sunset Rock on Lookout Mountain one evening and I was exploring, getting into some free, free climbing, freestyle, which I didn't usually do. Usually I had all the rappelling gear and I was always tied off and doing things the way you should typically do it. But this time I was freestyling. And I was about 10 feet from the top of Sunset Rock. And I, the shadows were coming behind me. The rock was getting cold as night was coming. And I didn't know where I was going to go, which is the way freestyling is. You kind of have to be creative. You're going what you think is going to be a good route, and then if it's not, you've got to go back. Well, it, So at this point, I was to the place, well, okay, do I go back? And I looked back down over my shoulder. I got about 100 feet to the stone floor below. I got 10 feet going up, and I was stuck. And I, didn't, I just sat there for a while, you know, um, just feet on a little ledge. Looking around, all my options. I don't like the idea of going back because it'll be dark by the time I get back. I'll probably kill myself that way. I'm looking forward. I think I could jump, probably kill myself that way. You know, so that's where I'm at. And at some point, I see moss growing just out of my reach. And moss is, is a sign that typically there's a crevice. There's a crack. That might be all I need. And then I looked and saw some more moss. And I said, I'm going for it. And I started praying, you know. Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. And I jumped, grabbed on my fingernails that moss as fast as I can, you know. And I'm up at the top. And I'm, thank you, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. You've had one of those moments 
And I think worship should be one of those moments. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It's so good to be in your house. Are you not the one who saved me and brought me here? Are you not the one who took away all of my sins? Are you not the one who bled for me on the cross? Are you not the one who has taught me everything I've been taught? Are you not the one who's given me all that I have? Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That should be how we go into the house of the Lord. It's it's my life. It's my breath. It is good to come, oh God, and thank you. Because my life depends upon you. Not how I feel. Not what I do. But you. And I praise you. And I adore you. Do we wake up that way on the Sabbath day? Did we take that into the week that my perspective on life is to be grateful for the breath that I can breathe because out of this nostrils, out of this mouth comes praise to my God who is good and loving and kind and is drawn me to his house and to his people. Well, that's the first perspective I think we have here. The second is learning to be gauged by God's standard. Verse 5, how great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. Now, I want to show you a twist. When we typically think about how great are God's works, we just sang a song, How Great Thou Art. When you think about how great are God's works, I think first comes to my mind is God's great works of creation. Teaching on that in discipleship class this morning. God creating all that we have in the space of six days and all very good. Those are great works that God does for us. And then I think of the great works of redemption and the cross. And it's been mentioned already in our service. But that's not the context of Psalm 92. So it's kind of, whoa, what's going on here? The context here is judgment. Do you think of God's great works of judgment? See, again, that's typically something that escapes us. And because it escapes us, it, it's informative that we, that we see it. Look at verse 7. Here's the context. That when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only so they could be destroyed. That's judgment. God making people and then judging them, destroying them. And then also look over, I mean, you see it again um, in verse 9. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. Works of judgment, and it's based on a standard of sin and holiness. Those who are sinners, those who do iniquity, they don't measure up. And so they will be wiped out. They will be destroyed, which is why we need so desperately Christ to take away all of our sin so that our measure is measured in Christ. And Christ is our standard. But to think of works, great works, being judgment works. Verse 6 
Since this man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. My mama told me never to say the word stupid. I got over it. And I got over it because I saw it in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, it's God's word. And that's the only time you can disobey your mama, okay? When, when God gives you permission, it doesn't make sense. He says, a senseless person and a stupid person. Does it make sense to live your life and not think you're going to die? That would be stupid. It doesn't make sense to say, I'm not going to have to worry about judgment. That would be stupid. That's the context. Is you got people living as though sin doesn't matter. Their sin doesn't matter. That's life without sense. Without any good sense. That's stupid. Is the way God describes it. You ever live that way? And I've said to my wife when she's says to me, catches me in the sin, she says, why did you do that? I've learned to say, doesn't make any good sense. Sin never does. I have no good rationale for that sin. It was sin. Sin is senseless. Sin is stupid. Do we learn to gauge our lives based on God's standard and not our own? But God is on high Verse 8, you, O Lord, are on high forever. He's, he's on his throne. He's in this place of judgment. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I mentioned this at the beginning of the psalm that there's a big difference between a Christian's perspective and a non-Christian's perspective. And here's why. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Verse 14 says, But a natural man, that's another way of saying a non-Christian, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So a non-Christian looks at us who are Christians and says, Oh, you're, you're trying to be too good or holy. That's just foolish. And we are looking at them and saying, no, you're living without sense and you're stupid. It's totally two different perspectives. And we really get messed up when we want to be or we adopt the, the wrong perspective. The right perspective is that God is on high. He is judge. He does destroy and though many people forget God's judgment works, the judgment comes, and it has to come for God to be just and righteous. I mean, God is showing us, I think, where, where do you see God's justice and judgment? Even in the house of God. In the house of God, you have overseers. In the house of God, you have discipline. All of us, when we see a, a brother or sister offend us, we're supposed to admonish. That's part of our job, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another, to stop doing senseless stuff and do the right stuff. 
That's discipline that's happening in the body of Christ. You have to be together. You can't do that virtually. We come together to, to admonish, to discipline one another. That we have elders who oversee that discipline. Even in the sacraments that God gives us, there's an element of a discipline that don't take the Lord's Supper until you've examined yourself. You've disciplined your mind, your body, your thoughts to deal with sin rightly. Because there's a judgment coming if you don't take it rightly. There's this standard. And we are constantly gauging ourselves by the standard of God. When we don't think the standard matters, we are living though we are senseless or stupid. So God wants to bring us back constantly to His great work of judgment and justice because it matters. Look at Romans 2, 4 through 6. Great passage on judgment. We need the reminder because we're so prone to forget and God's so patient and tolerant, though not indifferent at all. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? I mean, all of those words... It's, 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 we fall into just loving God's kindness and riches and tolerance and patience. He says, make sure you use all of that rightly, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So you have a standard. You, you've got to constantly be turning away from sin. That's repentance, turning back to Christ. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds and then skip to verse 16 and on the day so there is this day of wrath on the day when according to my gospel God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus are we living with the perspective that God will judge our secrets you've got a secret do you have a secret sin? You know what's going on in your heart, your mind, your life. And you think, well, nobody's, nobody else is seeing it. Nobody seems to be bothered by it. I'm okay. And yet the standard is God says, no, I'm on high. I can see everything. I see it. I know your secret. Do you think lightly of my love, my kindness, my tolerance, my patience with you? You need to deal with it. Because there is a standard. And you will be disciplined if you don't deal with it. We have a loving Father who does not spare the rod. But rather has the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. And in order to conform us to the image of Christ, He must discipline us to get us to stop being senseless and stupid and begin to be conformed to Christ. Thankfully, we have a wonderful church of parents who are not afraid to use a disciplined rod in the home. That's an example that you love your kids like Christ loves us. There is a standard for living, a standard of righteousness. And we must seek to turn from sin and turn towards that standard and live that standard, praying for the enablement of God's Spirit. In the work of God conforming us 
to the image of Christ. So we are a people that are constantly changing and improving and growing because we, we realize there's a gauge, there's a measure. And we don't measure up. And so we keep striving for the righteousness that's found in Christ. You know, um, I see people that ignore this. Uh, remember a person, I saw him, I said, you know, you really, you really ought to be back in church. You haven't been in church. So I saw him out at the store. And uh, he says, yeah, I know. He says, I'm coming back. I'll be back. I'll be back this Sunday. And not only will I be back, just so you know, I, I, I'm going to make up my tithe and offerings, and I'm going to be back. I said, okay, great. He's not back. So he lied. I know a lot of people like that. You do too. They say they're going to do something, and they lie. And I think to myself sometimes, not every time, but I thought, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. Remember that, Acts chapter 5? Why does God give us that example? To show us that lying to God matters. They died on the spot. Because they lied to God. He wasn't just lying to me. He was lying to God. When he start promising God, God, I'm coming back to your house and I'm going to give you a tithe. Really? And you're going to say that and, and not show up? That's serious. I was talking to another man. And I've had several of these conversations where the man was telling me, I said, you know, you've been very successful. Tell me about it. And he was telling me about it. And he said, well... You know, I made my first million dollars about age 30. I always wanted to do that and finally succeeded at it and keeps going on. And at some point he said, I guess, you know, some people say I'm the self-made man. And I'm thinking, oh, don't say that. That's not a good standard that you by yourself made you to be who you are. And I'm thinking, Acts 12, you remember the story of Herod? That begins to declare about his wealth, his kingdom, how he's a self-made man. And what does God do when he starts talking about, I'm a self-made man? God eats him with maggots, with worms on the spot. Do you see God has a standard of judgment? And that standard of judgment matters. That standard is not mentioned on CNN. It's not mentioned on Fox News. That doesn't seem to be where they want to take you. And yet God is constantly through the scripture giving us a standard of righteousness and a standard of judgment. Declare his great works and he introduces judgment works. Well, you've seen it all through scripture. You remember God had a standard in Noah's day and he wiped out millions with a flood. Because he saw sin continually. Or you see that standard in Joshua and Caleb's life, they were the only ones who believed God, and God wiped out millions because they did not believe in Him to enter into the promised land. Or you remember the story of Korah when he rebelled against God's leadership in church, and the ground opens up, and 50,000 are swallowed up. It's just time after time you see the judgments of God, great works. You remember the story of Lot. Because there was such sin in the city, God sends down great fire. 
and brimstone and devours not just Sodom, not just Gomorrah, but a region of cities are devoured. Today we get great fires. We get great earthquakes. We get great storms. We get pestilence and viruses. And we don't stop to think, yeah, that's right because we're gauged by a standard. And our God has not stopped his great works of judgment. They exist all around us. We are those with the perspective that we understand it. And we live in light of it. And because we are aware of the standard, we know how desperately we need Christ. Because only through him can we measure up. Do we have that perspective that we're sharing with our kids and with our world? That the world's not spinning out of order. We still just have sinners constantly ignoring God. And instead of coming to get his good to give him praise, they're praising themselves. And God is going to continue to bring great judgment. Well, Second part of the psalm. Let's, let's move to the third part. the Verses 10 through 15. Just glory to God perspective. As the psalmist is talking here, it's like, wow, you have exalted, verse 10, you've exalted my horn. He begins to realize God is judging so many senseless, stupid people. He's destroying them, but not so with me. God's exalted my horn. Wow, it's like you've raised me up. You've raised up my leadership. I've been anointed with fresh oil. I meditated on that phrase, fresh oil, for a while. I, I don't know what's unfresh oil, you know? So it's, it's just, because I'm not thinking it's, he's talking about used oil or anything. It's just, it's just showing us that God's anointing on us is never boring. It's never stale. It's never old. It's, it's fresh. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. His mercies are new every morning. It's, it's that kind of emphasis um, that I, I look and I see the world in panic. I see the world not understanding that God's a judging God. They just don't get it. Uh, and it's what he says, and I look, verse 11, these are people who are typically my enemies. They are enemies of the church. They're evildoers. They rise up against us. But the church never goes down. The church continues to flourish. Verse 12. Verse 13, he gives a couple of great illustrations. The palm tree, the cedar tree. Seen a, a palm tree? Where is a palm tree typically planted? It, at the beach is what we see, or it's on the desert. In other words, you got a tree growing with nothing else growing around it. He says the church is like that. Everything else can be dry, sandy, rocky, burned up. And the tree flourishes. Palm tree. That's the church. And the same thing with a cedar tree. Cedar trees typically don't have any enemies. They, they just they stand and they grow and storms come and after the storm that's not the tree that's broken and you've got to pick up the cedar tree is there when the storms come against it 
that's the illustration he's given. He's just showing you the beauty of being, verse 13, planted in the house of the Lord, being God's church, flourishing in the courts of our God. Where does God anoint us with fresh oil? It's in the church. Again, it's being together, and we, we have this spiritual anointing of the Holy Spirit coming down upon the church. And I've said this all my life as people uh, take sermons that I've preached and say, well, I, I sent that to so-and-so. And there's lots of people who listen to sermons that are preached here from all over the world. And so when I run into those, some of those people who say, well, I've been listening to your sermons, I say, well, that's, that's good, thanks. You know, there's a sense of me that says, ah, that's, that's good, but it's sad. Because there's so much that's missed from just hearing my words. If, if you were just hearing my words, I don't think you would be here. It's because the Holy Spirit shows up. And the Holy Spirit anoints the words. And the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word. And the work of the Spirit in our midst is what changes us. And encourages us. And strengthens us. When I go to visit people who are sick and hurting, when I come to the sanctuary of God, my constant prayer is that God, please show up. Let us know your presence. Let us feel your presence. Let us sense your presence. We don't want to be senseless. We want to be informed by your presence and informed by your word. We want to be transformed. And we want to do our part. Uh, in over in Ephesians 4, it talks about kind of the church life that God has given us. Let me just read a part of this for us. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11 says, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So there's where I fit in. He's given pastors and teachers to the church. Verse 12, for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Well, there's the church. We come together on the Sabbath day, and it is an important part of our life to have the pastor-teacher teach. And the teaching is for the equipping of the saints so that each one who hears the teaching is anointed by God, fresh oil. And we begin 
to share with one another and minister to one another and care for one another. And instead of having the perspective of the world, we get more rooted. We get grounded. We're not tossed in panic. We're not tossed in fear. We're not worried about tomorrow. We get grounded. Instead of getting divided, we get unified. Because doctrine brings us together. It doesn't divide us. And it brings us together so that we build one another up in this beautiful unity in love. That's God's work in His church. How wonderful is that? The world keeps saying, don't do church. Y'all don't need church, do you? See, they will never understand this perspective because they're senseless and stupid. They're not gauging their life on the standard. They're flourishing unto destruction. Whereas we are like the palm tree. We're like the cedar tree. We're grounded. We're not tossed to and fro. We're becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We're starting to look like Christ, act like Christ, think like Christ, worship and adore God. Even as Christ. How beautiful the anointing that God has given us and what He's doing. And it, it doesn't grow old. Back in Psalm 92, verse 14, they will still yield fruit, still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. Same context. In old age. Why? Why? What are they doing? To declare that the Lord is upright, He's my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. We've got some very wonderful, beautiful old people in our church. We've got a handful. I'm talking about, amen. I, I'm, I'm talking about some that have been here 30 years. I'm thinking in my mind of some that are shut in and can't be in the room. But if you've been around 30 years, you know them. And they're beautiful people who, when you go to their home and talk to them, they still declare God's praise. They still love the family of God and pray for this body. They're engaged even at home. They're not passive at all. They still are giving their resources for God's people and God's church. In their old age, they're like still full of life, full of sap, full of fruit. God's listening to their prayers. He's listening to their praise. He's receiving their gifts. And they're flourishing even in their old age. And I don't mind saying their names, but... They probably don't want me to. Because they know it's not about them. It's about Christ. And they love declaring how good Christ has been to them. How their life has been anointed and blessed. Because they have lived in the house of God. That's a beauty that God gives us 
every single Sabbath day. I need Sunday to roll around. It's the first day of the week because I can so easily get distracted. And I need again to hear these three things that, okay, quit being distracted. Quit being down. Quit being panicky. Quit thinking about yourself. It's grateful. You should be grateful. What has God done for you? You should begin this week with what has God done? And you should begin a week with praise, thanking God for who He is and all He's done. And you should begin again with God's standard, not the world's standard. Measure what you are seeing, the way God measures it. And you should see where you're headed. And it's going to be a place of giving God great glory. Because even in your old age, you will not wear out. You will not lose your purpose or your significance here on this earth. For your last breath, it's still praise to God. That's the people of God. What a beautiful perspective God has given us. Let's pray. Father, we get off, often we get so dark. We get so lonely. We forget the big picture. We make life about us. We ask that your word would constantly be bringing us back to you, our shepherd, so that our shepherd might shepherd us, so that our shepherd might have a word, so that our shepherd might enlighten, so that our shepherd might instill faith, give us the right stuff to believe again, and the right view of where we're headed. Father, forgive us for not coming to our shepherd. Forgive us when we've been reluctant to gather into the pen and be fed and nurtured by you. We thank you for a psalm for the Sabbath day. We ask that you would continue to nourish, to anoint, to equip. Give us determination and power and ability to turn from sin and to turn to you for we need you for those who are here hearing the words of Jesus for the first time Lord draw them to yourself we would love to see your house full week after week the work of your hands drawing your children to yourself for we ask it all in Jesus name Amen